Welcome to episode 20, where I'm joined by breathwork expert Patrick McKeown. Patrick is hugely passionate about the power of the breath, in part due to the impact poor quality breathing had on his physiology in his younger years, as well as the misinformation on breathing in society at large. Patrick explains the risk mouth breathing poses to our well-being, something that is rarely picked up on at critical periods by parents or health professionals. Through his work, Patrick has contributed to the field of breathwork with programs that help develop functional breathing patterns. Patrick tells us how we can measure whether we have optimal breathing patterns with a simple exercise and practical changes we can make to improve a fundamental component of our health, our breath. Welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. Today I'm joined by Patrick McKeown, breathing instructor, author and creator of The Oxygen Advantage. Hello Patrick, thanks for joining me. Sure, of course. Good to be here, James. We're going to speak a lot about breathwork today, Patrick. Would you mind giving me an overview of the field of breathwork? Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a fascinating field. It's a field that has been very much misunderstood, mistaught, um, very poor awareness around it, a lot of misinformation out there. And it's not that I know everything about it, I don't, but we have to look at breathing with a wider application of what is typically out there. It's, it's, it's a function, of course, with the human body, but by influencing our breathing, we can influence many of the major functions, including sleep, mental health, movement. We can influence dentistry. So children, for example, growing up with their mouths open are more prone to crooked teeth. Um, and other modalities, respiration, for example. So if you were to consider respiration, mental health, sleep and craniofacial development in children and that will encompass quite a sector of the population but there's an idea out there that breathing is all about take the deep breath and it is the greatest lot of nonsense that was ever put out into the sphere of breathing now take a deep breath the instruction is good but the interpretation is normally it's a misinterpretation so so yeah, so we'll have an interesting talk and like I'll give you my history as well and coming across it, I was one of those chronic mouth breeders, kid growing up in Ireland, I grew up in a town, Dunboyne, County Mead and I had asthma and with asthma you have a stuffy nose and if you have a stuffy nose you're two to three times more likely to have sleep issues. So I was tired a lot of the time, I was highly strung because my mouth breathing was causing slightly faster and upper chest breathing. And for me, getting through school and university, the amount of time that I had to direct to my studies. In actual fact, at 14 years of age, I left school altogether, never to go back, out of a sense of frustration. Because if you think that education is, is really requiring the students and the child to be able to concentrate and to be able to, atten- to hold their attention span on the curriculum and you know pay attention to the teacher as as much as they can but a child with dysfunctional breathing and poor sleep is not able to do that and education is then grading us as whether we are intelligent or not like I'd I went to St. Declan school then Cabra secondary school and my maths teacher at the time he told me I would be better off picking potatoes in the field so you know there's things that Teachers, I think, really have to start looking at some of these kids who are, you know, having trouble and look at their breathing and look at their physiology and look at their sleep. And this is not new information. This has been around for about 110 years. The mouth breathing child is not going to reach their full potential. I was the mouth breathing child. 
Now, I did go back to school at age 15. I studied for the Leaving Cert. I was studying 10 hours a day. That's not an exaggeration. You have to study that amount if you've got poor attention span. I got my grades. I got into university. I did business, economic and social studies in TCD. And I graduated in 1997. I was in the corporate world. I absolutely hated it. And then... And it's not that the corporate world was the problem. The problem was that my physiology was not able to cope with the corporate world. My breathing physiology, I was always in that increased stress response and poor sleep. And while I was at university in Sweden doing an Erasmus program, the students told me that I was snoring so loud and the next thing is I would completely stop breathing. Now, I didn't know that. That was what's called, that's obstructive sleep apnea. I wasn't aware of it at the time. But I was the kid, the university student, falling asleep in class. You know, so I often feel like I wrote a book recently enough and I included my story in it because society and education, you know, it's it's grading all of these kids and telling these kids if they're academically intelligent and preparing them for the workforce. But in order to achieve academically, you need to be able to concentrate and you need to be able to hold your attention span and you need to have good sleep and good energy. But education does not teach us how to concentrate. Education does not teach us how to develop our attention span. Education, there's no mention of how to improve sleep. Medical doctors, unfortunately, have overlooked it. The kids that's going in with the mouth open, there will be no attention paid whatsoever. The, the pediatric dentist, the child going into the dentist with the mouth open, with the exception of a few notable dentists throughout the world, many throughout the world, but a few here in Ireland. One is Dr. Tony O'Connor. He's down in Ballon College, down your neck of the woods there. And there's others. There's other dentists as well who know this. And there's, de- and there's doctors, and there's ear, nose and throat doctors who know about it. But in the mainstream, the medical profession and the dental profession have overlooked it. So if there's any parent out there and your child is a stuffy nose and your child is constantly mouth breathing, it's really, really important to to consider it. And, you know, simple breathing exercises to help decongest the nose. Now, if you can get your mouth closed and you're breathing through your nose, it will improve your sleep. And if you improve your sleep quality, you're already on the way to better mental health. I don't think anybody is going to achieve a calmness and a stillness of the mind unless they have deep sleep. And when we look at the literature with ADHD with kids, for example, children with sleep disorder breathing are more prone to ADHD. And if they're untreated, if they snore at age five and untreated, by eight years of age, they have a 40% increased risk of special education needs. So... If you think that 25 to 50% of this studied childhood population might breed, and if we think in the adult world, 75% of the, the adult population with anxiety and, and panic disorder have dysfunctional breathing patterns, how many people with anxiety and panic disorder are going to their counsellor, their psychotherapist, their psychologist, their psychiatrist, their mindfulness teacher, And these people are going to these events and these, you know, therapists and they're going in with dysfunctional breathing. They're breathing a little bit faster, a little bit harder, irregular breathing patterns, mouth breathing. They're leaving the therapist with the same dysfunctional breathing. 
if the physiology is in a fight or flight, if we, we are in that increased sympathetic drive, cognitive behavioural therapy is going to be limited. And I have no hesitation in saying that. And this is not a knock. All I want to do is we have to be looking beyond CBT. We have to be looking at deep sleep and we need to be looking at functional breathing patterns. It really sounds like, by and large, we're really missing a trick with the attention we pay to people's breathing patterns. And it's not even others. Oh, it's huge. Mm, it's even our own. We mightn't even understand ourselves that our breathing patterns might be off. As you said yourself, you didn't even maybe realise it um, until later in life. And in things like, say, panic disorder or anxiety, I know in my own training, not a whole lot of emphasis is placed on breathing, particularly not how to functionally breathe. So it's like the problem isn't being formulated in as much detail as it might need. So we're addressing some of it, but maybe not the whole picture. Just for those kind of listening in, um, Patrick, who might be thinking to themselves, well, my breathing's fine. Is there any way that they could test or check whether this is the case? Yeah, there's a test called, we use the body oxygen level test, um, but it's also from Buteco method, control pause method, control pause measurement. And this involves sitting down for, say, about five or ten minutes and allowing your breathing to settle. And get a, you know, your phone with your timer, your stopwatch or whatever, and take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose and time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe? And when you feel the first definite desire to breathe, let go, breathe in through your nose and your breathing should be normal. So basically, in summary... That's a measurement of the length of time that you can hold your breath for comfortably after a normal exhalation through the nose. The ideal breath hold time would be 40 seconds. Now, if you're above 25 seconds, there's an 89% chance that your breathing is functional. And if you're below 25 seconds, your breathing is more likely to be upper chest. Your breathing is more likely to be irregular, faster, and uh, harder breathing now somebody with a, a bolt score of 22 seconds is doing pretty good you know they're close to 25 seconds but we have many people coming in with bolt scores i'm you know looking at people long long COVID, for example bolt scores of three seconds and five seconds these people cannot they cannot string sentence they're running out of air people with anxiety and panic disorder and it seems to be when it comes to panic disorder, there are two subsets of people. There's one group who can cope with the feeling of air hunger and suffocation quite easily. And they'll tend to have a longer breath hold time. But there's another group who have a total aversion to the feeling of suffocation. And they will have a short breath hold time. And they will often frequently sigh and yawn and are caught for breath and are feeling air hunger. And it's really important to change breathing patterns for all people with a bold score of less than 25 seconds, but all people who are in that, that slightly stressed response, hyperarousal, overstimulation, because we can, we can influence the autonomic nervous system. There's plenty of research over the last 30 years, you know, that we can increase what's called heart rate variability. And heart rate variability basically means that as you breathe out, your heart rate should slow down. And so in other words, the, timing of your heartbeat during inhalation to exhalation is different so during the inhalation during rest as you breathe in your heartbeat should speed up a little bit and during the breath out as you exhale the heartbeat should slow down a little bit and if that's happening 
that implies that, you know, there's a reasonably good balance in the autonomic nervous system. But if we're overstimulated or increased stress response, we, we don't have the same variation in heartbeats and timing heartbeat to heartbeat during the inhalation versus the exhalation. So I suppose, James, when I came across this by accident, I read a newspaper article and there was an article written about a Russian doctor, Konstantin Buteko, Soviet doctor working with people with asthma. And it was published back in, God, it's 1998, 97 now, I can't remember the exact year. But I read the article and it said about breathing through the nose and breathing light. And I was doing neither. I was hungry for air. Mouth breathing, you would hear my breathing. You know, if I was, if I was a kid at, at, a, at a family dinner or a friend's family dinner, they'd be giving out because they'd hear me eating and breathing at the same time. Because a child with a stuffy nose who is a chronic mouth breather, or an adult for that matter, you'll tend to notice that they've got noisy breathing. But mouth breathing is activating the upper chest, and mouth breathing is a faster breathing pattern. And upper chest and slightly faster breathing is sending signals to the brain that the body is under threat, because that's how we breathe when we're, on, we're in a, a, a dangerous situation. Now, conversely, when we practice changing people's breathing patterns, we always start off with the foundation of breathing in and out through the nose. And you can decongest your nose by holding your breath. And this has been known for since 1923, so almost for 100 years. To open up your nose, take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose and gently nod your head up and down holding your breath. And continue holding your breath until you feel maybe a moderate air hunger and then let go and breathe in. I'm just saying moderate because if you have people prone to panic attacks, the air hunger that they generate during the nose unblocking exercise can induce a fear response. So if you are prone to panic attacks or anxiety, go easy with the breath hold. Don't hold it for too long to the point that it generates too much stress. Because that's where I've made some mistakes with people and have increased their stress response rather than decrease it. So after that then, it's a good experiment is to breathe lightly. And this would involve, say, sitting down and maybe have one hand on your chest and one hand just above the navel and bring your attention out of your mind onto your breathing and really slow down the speed of the air coming into your nose. So you're slowing down the speed of the air coming into the nose and you're having a really slow and relaxed, gentle exhalation and your breathing should be completely silent. And the whole objective here is to breathe less air into your body. Now, as you breathe less air into your body, carbon dioxide increases in the blood and as carbon dioxide increases in the blood you feel the sensation of air hunger but as carbon dioxide increases in your blood it stimulates the vagus nerve it also increases blood flow to the brain and it activates the body's relaxation response so when people are practicing that exercise and i had a session with somebody two people this morning and i always ask the question what's happening to saliva in your mouth is your mouth drier? Has, you got, has your mouth more moist? Or is your mouth the same? When you activate the body's relaxation response, you typically have increased watery saliva in the mouth. So when it comes to addressing mental health, when it comes to reducing anxiety and panic disorder and agoraphobia, it's very important to change our physiology. It's very important to dampen the stress response and to increase the body's relaxation response and to bring a balance in the autonomic nervous system. 
and focusing on that because you know i just give given the example i wrote it in the book in another book but it was somebody who came into me years ago with depression and you just kind of get a sense when you're working with people you know and i asked her i says how do you feel when you wake up in the morning and she says i wake up absolutely exhausted and i said to her has anybody ever asked you about your sleep quality have you ever done a sleep study do you snore do you, could you possibly have obstructive sleep apnea? And she said no. Now, the healthcare professional that's looking after this woman may have thought that it's the depression which is causing her exhaustion. But maybe we have to ask this question. Here could be a woman with insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea. And when both insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea go together, the risk of depression is high. So here's again, you know, what's causing what? Or is there a feedback loop? And of course, if you're chronically exhausted, you cannot focus, you cannot function. That's going to raise up anxiety, which in turn, chronic anxiety over time can contribute to depression. So the breath itself, I think it's a very important state. And, you know, it's not just for the person who has um, anxiety or panic disorder. Yesterday, I worked with two premiership footballers. Um, in the morning, I worked with a young kid that's a mountain mountaineer or mountain mountain bike cyclist, but on a very, very top international level. And these people are doing it to be able to change states. And this morning, the session with two people, the guy was a racing car driver. So, you know, how can you change your physiology? that you can upregulate if you want to upregulate, you can downregulate if you want to downregulate, you can help open up your airways if you want to do that, or your blood vessels, or improve your oxygenation. And it is really about looking at breathing from a number of different dimensions and going beyond the information that's normally taught and going beyond the yoga studio, where often by the yoga instructors saying, take these full big breaths, what exactly is happening during that time? We have to delve deeper and further into this. Buteco seems to offer that kind of framework, Patrick. Am I right in thinking that it looks to uh, improve our breathing quality, which has a knock-on effect with that anxious response and our sleep quality? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. A key part of it as well seems to be how increasing our CO2 tolerance, uh, or a key part of it seems to be increasing our CO2 tolerance. Am I right in thinking that? Buteco focuses on the biochemistry and the biochemistry of breathing is is centered on carbon dioxide and also blood pH. So say for example, James, we have a major stress in our life. We'll say somebody is getting divorced or having marital issues, they're getting divorced and that's going on for a few months as it does. And during that time, it's going to invoke a stress response and the person is likely to be breathing faster and it's, they're likely to be breathing upper chest and breathing harder. Now, that can involve breathing too much air, which can cause too much carbon dioxide to be removed from the blood through the lungs. But that can increase the person's sensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide. Now, what it means is that even when the divorce and everything is finalized and everybody goes their merry ways, the stress response can still remain in the person's breathing pattern. In other words, their breathing pattern is remaining the same and it doesn't recover quickly. So when we are exposed to chronic stress, and obviously you know that we're not, we as human beings are not designed 
to, to cope well with chronic stress. We're very much throughout our evolution well developed for short-term stresses and for long-term stresses the impact it can have is it has an impact on our breathing. Now from another aspect of it is that when you breathe faster and harder during stress that in turn then is evoking a stress response because it's all in the exhalation. When we breathe in the vagus nerve which is this nerve that's wandering throughout the human body and 80 to 90 percent of the nerves of the vagus nerve are from the body up to the brain so you have this nerve innervating all of the major organs the lungs the heart the gastrointestinal tract the viscera of the abdomen and 80 to 90 percent of the communication is from the body up to the brain if you breathe hard and fast and especially a fast exhalation this information is communicated from the body to the brain the brain is interpreting that the body is under threat, and this is activating a fight or flight response an increased hyperarousal. Now, if, for example, we want to counter that, so again, coming back to the person who's going through a divorce, they have a tricky period in their life, it's very important to take some time out and to sit down and to breathe out really, really slowly out through your nose. And I know it sounds so simple, but even two minutes can help to activate the body's relaxation response. So the person is sitting down, take a very soft breath in through your nose, and a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle breath out through the nose. And by having that slow and gentle and relaxed and prolonged breath out through the nose, the information that's going from the body up to the brain is that everything is okay. The brain is interpreting that the body is safe when the exhalation is calm and prolonged. So, you know, when the brain interprets the body is safe, the brain then is going to send signals of calm to the body. So Buteyko, his main focus was really on the biochemistry because people who have oversensitive to carbon dioxide buildup have faster and harder breathing. Now, I'm going to bring in female breathing here because female breathing is much different to male breathing. This has been known since 1915. So during the monthly cycle, post-ovulation, mid-luteal phase to mid-follicular phase, there's an increase in the hormone progesterone. And progesterone is a respiratory stimulant. It causes breathing to speed up and to become harder. And carbon dioxide levels can drop by as much as 25%. And when this happens, this can drive up anxiety and panic disorder. This can also increase pain perception, lower pain thresholds and affect sleep. So females who suffer the most from PMS are the ones with the greatest sensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup. Now, but... Also, the other group that have a strong sensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup are people with panic disorder. Not them all. There seems to be two, two groups. But certainly one group is very sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide. And what this means is that they have a, a very strong aversion or fear of the feeling of suffocation. They have a maladaptive alarm towards this feeling of suff suffocation. So when I'm working with somebody coming in with panic disorder... I start off with very, very gentle exercises, holding the breath maybe for three seconds, breathing normally for 15, holding for three, but breathing normally for 15 seconds. And then I have them stand up and I have them do short breath holds during walking. And then I have them sit down and have them do breathe light for maybe 30 seconds. In other words, breathe less air for 30 seconds, but then breathe normally for about a minute, maybe two minutes and do it again. And we gently exposed our body 
to increase carbon dioxide but we have to do it so gently because if they have an overly sensitive reaction to the buildup of carbon dioxide i can put them into a stress response now why do i want to expose somebody with panic disorder to increase carbon dioxide well number one i'm deliberately putting them into a state of controlled suffocation i need to desensitize their body's reaction to the fear of suffocation and i do it by giving them a teaspoon of suffocation number two i give them light breathing exercises to improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain because this is a calming effect on the central nervous system I think pretty much everybody is aware that the standard advice of a, in days gone by was if you were having a panic attack, grab a brown paper bag and start breathing into it. It's not altogether safe, but the basic premise of it was okay because as you breathe into the bag, you pull carbon dioxide in the bag and then as you inhale from the bag, you carry that carbon dioxide into your lungs, which in turn increases in the blood. And carbon dioxide is not a waste gas that people talk about. It, it serves some very, very important functions in the human body. It opens up your blood vessels, for example. People with harder and faster breathing often have cold hands and cold feet. I had cold hands and cold feet. And you never put the, this down to how you breathe. But if you're breathing too hard and too fast, your blood circulation is impaired. So, the other aspect then with panic disorder, so we desensitize the reaction to carbon dioxide. We have to improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. I also then bring in low breathing with optimal movement of the diaphragm because of the connection between the diaphragm and the emotions. But when we do low breathing, I make sure that people don't overbreed. So when we are targeting the diaphragm with optimal movement of the diaphragm, and allowing the diaphragm to move back up to its normal resting position after an exhalation. And then, as they breathe in, the diaphragm is moving downwards. But it's all done in silence. You should never hear somebody breathing during rest. And it should always be in and out through the nose. And then we bring in resonance frequency breathing. And that's breathing at a rate of, depending on the person's bolt score, but... I typically have them breathe in maybe five seconds in and five seconds out and five in and five out for short periods of time. And this is to help to bring about a balance in the autonomic nervous system. So there's many things here we can do for people with panic disorder and for people with anxiety. And it's not just targeting one aspect. And it's also how to, what to do if you get a panic attack, you know. Should you breathe fast and shallow? Well, not really, because if you breathe fast and shallow, it's going to contribute to the feeling of suffocation. So how can you alleviate the feeling of suffocation? Well, you could cup your hands on your face, for example, and you could breathe nose and just slow down your breathing a little bit. Breathe in, two, three, out, two, three. And if you can slow down your breathing, maybe to 10 breaths per minute, that will help. So no slow and low breathing. Or if you're finding that you're hyperventilating, and your breathing is getting that bit faster and harder. How do you control it? But above all else, it's not the situation that's the problem. It's the person's everyday breathing. Look at the breathing. You, I'm assuming you work with clients all of the time. I'm assuming you're looking at their breathing. And look at the, the per people who are coming in with anxiety and panic disorder. You'll typically see faster breathing than your own. Compared to your own is a good benchmark. Assuming that your own breathing is is okay um, you'll see faster breathing you'll see upper chest breathing 
Do they walk in with their mouth open? Are they get, getting breathless walking into you? Do they run out of air during sentences? Do you hear them sighing? Are they, are they yawning frequently? Do they feel air hunger? Do they ever explain that they just can't take a satisfying breath? Measure their bolt score. And that will tell you a lot. And these people, they're breathing. They have to, have to change their breathing patterns. Because otherwise, the treatment is not going to be as successful as it should be. I think people might be surprised about their own bowl scores. Well, I certainly was, because I'm reading your book at the moment, Oxen Advantage, and I said, oh, I'll take mm-hmm. my bowl score. And you know, I do a, a fair, a reasonable amount of intense exercise. I go to exercise classes, I play sports, and I thought, oh, and generally I can, I'm fairly fit, I can run for a long period of time. And I thought, oh, okay, my bowl score should be reasonable you kind of give the chart you know under 25 seconds over 40 seconds and i was quite surprised that yeah. I, I think i barely got to 18 seconds uh it was a real kind of stretch i'd probably even um give myself an extra second or two there so which might mm-hmm. suggest that yeah my my breathing could improve because I, cause I and i have heard you speak uh, previously about the impact and as you alluded to earlier how it can have a positive impact, say, with performance. I think you mentioned there was a study in Australia, I'm not sure is it rugby league or rugby union players, and how their oh, it was to do with sprints and how yes, they're yeah. max out. They'd max out yes. after say nine sprints, but having done I think maybe six or eight weeks of um, uh, breathing exercises, it improved to about fourteen sprints. So it really improved their Correct. Um, yes. ability. And just coming back to something you said earlier about it sounding so simple. And I, I suppose it is, and it's, it's, but it also makes sense about why breathe. It also makes sense that breathing is so fundamental. But it kind of reminds me of other books that I think when something is almost a cliche, you know, uh, take deep mm. breaths or have have good breaths, or um, it loses a bit of power. It's like, oh yeah, I know that. But sometimes you need to breathe, breathe a bit of life into that. And before we were online, we were talking about a book, um, Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep, and we know it's important to get a good night's sleep. But after reading that book. I, it really made me realize how important it is to have a good night's sleep. And I think your book does something very similar, where it takes something that we kind of know, but it really brings it to life. It really shows us why that is so important. How can we start to build better breathing habits? Well, I suppose it really depends on what somebody wants to get out of it. Um, measure the bolt score, and I'd never be worried when a person feels when my bolt score is 15 seconds. Physical exercise, by the way, doesn't improve your bolt score. We have top-class athletes, world-class athletes, and we see both scores ranging from 15 seconds. Yesterday was from 15 to 30 seconds. So one of the Premiership footballers, he his was 30 seconds. Um, another was 28 seconds, and another person was 15. So it can vary. So physical exercise doesn't change your, your bolt, but if you get a decent bolt score, it results in reduced breathlessness during physical exercise just that your breathing is is more efficient and you don't need so much air to cover a given distance or a given intensity um i'd start off like if you have a stuffy nose do the nose unblocking exercise get your mouth closed during sleep i think it's fundamental and i know matthew walker i tried to find out i have the book here in front of me i know we were talking about before we started and not one mention i can't find one mention of nasal breathing in sleep and yet that's the elephant in the room. If you're waking up at a dry mouth in the morning, you're not likely to wake up feeling refreshed. I was that person, mouth breathing, constantly exhausted. And I wrote an article that was published in January of this year 
And I wrote about two of those in Truck Doctors. And it's breathing re-education and the phenotypes of sleep apnea. So here's a condition that's often undiagnosed, especially it affects men more so than females. Although females post-menopause, it can increase 300%. And this is when the individual might be snoring and then they stop breathing. It has a huge negative impact on health and is implicated in causing so many different issues, um, especially cardiovascular issues, high blood pressure, heart attack, stroke, etc. Now, if you're waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, what I would say is start getting your mouth closed during the day, even do your physical exercise. If you're going for a walk, make sure your mouth is closed. If you go for a light jog, make sure your mouth is closed. Now we use a tape and we've been taping the mouths for 20 years. Now, it's not, a, by the way, like we use a tape and it's my own tape, so I have to make a, a disclosure on that. Um, the tape is called Myotape. And it's, it's a tape that simply surrounds the mouth, bringing the lips together, so it doesn't cover the lips per se. And by bringing the lips together, it's going to encourage you to breathe through your nose during sleep and you'll wake up feeling much more refreshed, more likely, less, less likely to need to go to the bathroom. It's not a sign if you have to get up to go to the bathroom during the night because it implies that your sleep is fragmented and it implies that your, your sleep has got disrupted. So you're much better off going to bed pretty feeling, you know, relatively tired and sleeping right the way through and getting that deep, deep, deep sleep because it's during the deep sleep that the brain cleans itself, the glymphatic system. Waking up feeling refreshed and already then we're in a good mood and we're able to concentrate. So also just check your breathing against somebody else's breathing. Now, assuming that the other person might have good breathing, um, sometimes it's good to make a comparison. And if you find yourself breathing a little bit faster in upper chest breathing, just know that that type of breathing pattern is going to feed into your stress response. Now, you might feel calm. You may not feel that you have anxiety or anything like that. I didn't, but I was highly strong. And what was really impacted was my, my concentration. I wasn't able to place my attention. My mind was, was very active. Lots of thoughts coming through the head. And, you know, going through school, I, I would be reading the, the page of a book. My eyes are looking at the page. My attention isn't on the page. And I often feel that mindfulness, which is excellent, it's not going to help the very person who needs it the most. It's not going to help the person um, as effectively if they if the person has sleep disorder breathing. They need to get their sleep issues checked. If they have dysfunctional breathing patterns, it's very important to to improve your functional breathing. So I suppose the next time you feel stressed and your breathing is a little bit faster and harder, immediately close your mouth and have a soft breath in through your nose and a really slow and relaxed gentle breath out through your nose, silent breathing, and do that for 90 seconds and see does it downregulate you. See does it help to activate your relaxation response. Tonight before you go to sleep, assuming that you're not drinking alcohol, sit down, put one hand on your chest, one hand just above the navel, and gently slow down your breathing to the point of air hunger, and try and sustain that for 30 seconds to a minute to two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, and see if it increases the watery saliva in the mouth. And that will be activating the body's relaxation response and more conducive for sleep. As you breathe, always check if you're breathing high in the chest or are you breathing low in the diaphragm. 
And there's various simple exercises to, to engage the diaphragm. One exercise could be you have your hands either side of your lower ribs. And as you breathe in, you want to gently guide your ribs outwards. And as you breathe out, to, to guide the ribs inwards. And you could even slow down your breathing. Maybe breathe in for five seconds and out for five seconds. And, you know, so different exercises that you could practice. But most definitely, I would be using breathing exercises not just as a means of training the physiology, but also training the brain. And when we think of concentration and attention span, these are two traits that society demands that we have them. And as I said at the very beginning, education does not teach us how to concentrate. And education does not teach us how to develop our attention span. But yet, for us to excel in education, we need to be able to concentrate. And we need to have a good attention span. Now you throw information technology into the mix there. You throw social media. And all of text messaging, alerts, TikTok, everything that's on the go. And all it's doing is serving to train the brain to be distracted. When we're working with elite performers, they're not worried per se about their functional breathing, and nor are they worried about their physical performance. These guys are already, they're, they're up there. But what they do be concerned with is their recovery, and they can be concerned with pre-match anxiety, and they can be wanting to get into that flow state. And flow state is a state of mind whereby the mind is it's relaxed and alert at the same time. So the footballer and the game become one. The runner and the race become one. That there's no differentiation between the individual who's doing the activity and the activity at hand. Now, a lot of people talk about present moment awareness and being in the now and everything else. and Brilliant stuff. But it's not just about talking about it. It's the experience. It's about being able to bring your mind into a state of calm where you're fully immersed in the present moment, where you can see and you can look with a soft gaze and you're completely there. You can listen and you can listen with your full attention. You can feel, you can take your attention out of the mind and disperse it throughout the body and you can occupy every cell of your body. When you're sitting, sit with every cell of your body. When you go for a walk, Walk with every cell of your body. When you talk, talk with every cell of your body. When you run, run with every cell of your body. Too often as human beings, we have a habit of thinking. And education has taught us how to think. And how to break information into tiny pieces to decipher, to analyse, to question. We have trained our brains how to think. But we have not trained our brains how to stop thinking. And the individual who is thinking the most is the individual who is least happy. And this is not my words. There was a study that was conducted by Harvard professor um, Killingworth. And he, they logged 250,000 data points. And they asked, I think it was 5,000 individuals through an app called trackyourhappiness.org. They asked the question, are you doing something? but thinking about something else. In other words, are you doing a particular task and is all of your attention on this task? Or are you just going through the motions of doing the task with your attention elsewhere? And they found that human beings, their mind wanders the most. Sorry, they found that human beings, their minds wander a lot. But they also found 
that the individuals whose minds wandered the most were least happy. And I think this is really true. And you see this. You see it with the individuals coming in. And they're so immersed in thought as I was. And I had a habit of thinking and I could not switch off. And it's not a nice place to be. And the reason being is because how on earth can you experience life if we're living in our heads? And all of this stuff needs to be taught in schools. You know, we are teaching children how to think. But we are not giving these kids the tools to deal with stress. We're not giving these kids the tools to deal with life. And yet we're, we're expecting these kids. The, our education system is not fit for purpose. It's an education system that was developed probably 100 years ago. And it needs to be brought into the, you know, the current day and age and help these kids and these teenagers and especially young girls um, because they are the ones that are suffering the most from social media and giving them the tools to be able to deal with what life is throwing at them. That's what an education is. The ability to change states. The ability to have deep sleep when you want to. And, you know, that would be a tremendous day. And I think that day will come, James. I think it's going to come. Because I do wonder if modern society for younger people, if it if it's more stressful, as you say, our attention is being grabbed so much more. And it kind of sounds like what you were saying earlier, that maybe our breathing changes as we get older and stresses, stressors compound and that we're maybe more susceptible that, to that at a younger age where our attention is being drawn towards things more often. We're going to be stressed more. That conditions our breathing and it's a higher risk factor for our sleep to become poor, which then poor sleep begets poorer mood, begets poor sleep. And just on that topic, you know, I used to have quite bad insomnia for a while and uh, being a CBD therapist, you know, CBT for insomnia would probably be considered a gold standard for treating insomnia. And I kind of knew all the things that you could do for it. And I don't think breathing ever was part of it. Not as far as I recall, there's lots of things you can do, but I don't ever remember um, functional breathing being a way of treating insomnia, which is quite interesting given what we've spoken about today and how it seems to it could play a massive role in it. Well, you know, if we breathe faster in sleep, the brain is interpreting that the body is under threat. And always remember that the purpose of the brain is to protect the body. It's the overriding purpose. So if you have somebody with asthma, for example, they typically are a faster breather during sleep, depending on how well their asthma is controlled. Somebody with anxiety, panic disorder, etc. And the faster breathing during sleep, the brain can arouse the body out of sleep and the brain's aroused out of sleep. And that can contribute to insomnia. So there's a role there for functional breathing patterns. The other time that insomnia can manifest, of course, if we're overstimulated going to sleep, that we... So insomnia can manifest at two times. One is a difficulty going asleep and that can be due to overstimulation. So in down-regulating the, the autonomic nervous system, that can be very important there. The second time that insomnia can manifest is you're after having four or five hours of sleep and then you wake up and you're lying there awake in bed at four o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning and you're just thinking to yourself you're not awake enough to get up but you're not asleep enough to go back to sleep and this is the most challenging time so you could lie there being anxious which you know could be fairly normal because you're thinking well i have to be up at seven o'clock and if i don't go back to sleep I'm going to be absolutely exhausted 
And one tool there would be to continuously bring your attention onto your breathing and slow down your breathing with the aim of activating the body's relaxation response. But then we have to ask, why did we wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning? As I mentioned, fast breathing could be one. And your breathing during the day influences your breathing during sleep. So if you're going around with your mouth open and hard and fast breathing during the day, well, that's how you're going to breathe during sleep. The second thing is snoring. Snoring can wake us up, but also can obstruct of sleep apnea. So by having your mouth closed and by having your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth and with improved functional breathing patterns, it helps to reduce the risk of sleep disorder breathing. And that in turn then will help to reduce the risk of insomnia. That is all we have time for today, Patrick. Um, that was extremely enlightening. And anyone that would like to find out any more, um, I'd really recommend your book that I'm reading at the moment, The Oxygen Advantage. And you do have two new books just out this year. Would you mind just before we finish up, telling us a little bit about those? Sure. The Breathing Cure is, is a book that I wrote about specifically to help to bring breathing into the public domain. Um, I wanted to include a lot of science, but have it as a relatively easy read. Now it's a big book. It's 190,000 words, 500 plus pages. I include 26 different breathing exercises to change different states. And for, for many, you know, any person who wants to kind of tap into the breath and to understand the breath. I also include sleep disorder breathing, um, childhood craniofacial development, epilepsy, diabetes, female breathing. So that's the breathing cure. And the next book is a very simple book. It's called Atomic Focus. And this was written for the individual with an agitated mind or a racing mind, the individual with poor focus and poor concentration and a poor attention span. I kept it simple, obviously, because, you know, somebody with a, with a poor attention span, I wanted to make sure that they can get more out of it. So I kept the font big and it's a short book, simple language. And we brought in stories like I've had podcasts with some of our own instructors. One, for example, is Jules Horn. He's a he's a well-known model, international model. Um, spoke with him. I spoke with Nicholas, Captain Nicholas from the Swedish Army. And I brought spoke with first responders and because we've you know for example we have some of our instructors are SWATs, SWAT special weapons and tactics some are navy seals instructors military police um we've got some coaches top co coaches and i'm not here to kind of just to brag or anything like that it's it's just that what i want to do is i just want to show that breathing has a purpose and that breathing is being used and I know in Ireland, you know, I don't think there's a great awareness of it there because most of our work is overseas, about 95%. But no doubt it will happen here, you know, and it, it would be great to see it really take off in Ireland. Um, so, so, yeah, so Atomic Focus is a book, as the name describes, and The Breathing Cure is the other one. I, I definitely think it will take off, Patrick, and I think you'll probably will have a lot to thank you for if it is the case, because you really are pioneering the feel of it, not just in Ireland, but internationally. That is all we have time, uh, Patrick, but thanks a million for your time today. Pleasure, James.